my friends at futureprimitive.org. I'm excited today to be on the phone with Antero Ali. Antero Ali was born in Finland. He currently lives in Berkeley, California, where he conducts workshops and stages theatrical productions, some of which have been released as films. Ali is also a professional astrologer and has authored books on experimental theater, astrology, and Timothy Leary's Eighth Circuit Model of Consciousness. Ali's books span a number of subjects, but all share common themes with his paratheatrical efforts, archetypes, personal mythology. Towards an Archaeology of the Soul outlines 26 years of his paratheatrical work. In um, 1991, he published a Talking Raven Quarterly, a literary journal featuring the writings of Robert Anton Wilson, Hakim Bey, and Rob Brezhny. I could say a lot about Antero from his biographies, but I will ask you, Antero, if you would introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, um, I'm um, nobody special. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And um, I've been um, pretty much uh, uh, living a life where I've owned my own time uh, for about 35 years. Um, uh, time for me is, is the going currency. It's, to me, by far greater value than money. And so I um, did everything I could to have as much time as I could manage. And then, you know, the question was, how do I want to uh, use this time? And so I've had a lot of time on my hands and a lot of time to think about how to, um, how to use that time. I see. And so you offer these workshops in Berkeley. Could you speak a bit about that? Well, the workshops that I offer in Berkeley are actually what I call uh, paratheater labs, and they're time-intensive uh, processes involving group ritual dynamics in a non-performance setting, so this is, there's no audience involved. And these labs uh, run for two to three months at a time, uh, meeting two to three times a week. So they're, they're quite intensive. And people um, who are interested in participating, they, um, the entry to these workshops is either by audition or interview. So it's not completely open to whoever has you know, the interest or the money to, to do it. And the work that we do is really um, uh, the application of, of a ritual technology I've been developing for about 30 years that combines techniques of theater, uh, dance, uh, song structure, vocal, as well as um, uh, zazen meditation technique. Right, right. I saw that um, Are You Serious asked you the question, do these workshops, can these, can these paratheatrical labs produce a lasting change in the people who participate? That's actually a highly likely event. The people that can that, that participate in the labs, that 
can continue participating, meaning not dropping out, but continue yes. all the way through the end, there invariably is um, a transformative effect on their lives, uh, something that continues well beyond the end of, of the lab session. And this is partly due to um, the focus of the labs themselves, meaning through these various techniques, uh, what we're really looking to excavate for each individual is a greater access to the internal landscape of real forces uh, and archetypes that govern our existence as we know it, and coming into a place where we are, as you know, the conscious ego or the individual personality acted on by these larger forces, uh, forces that uh, actually are released out of our own bodies. So when I talk about forces, I'm really talking about, for example, the force of habit, which is a very strong force, and this right. is embedded in the body itself through years of different habitual activity. And then there's the force of will, and there's all kinds of forces that the body um, uh, is moved by. And so our work is really setting up a situation where we can be receptive enough, and this is where the Zazen meditation technique comes in, yes. we can become receptive enough to be moved by the forces governing our existence. Well, you speak about your work contributing to the exploration of the archaeology of the soul, and I, I love those words. Could you elaborate on them? The archaeology of, of the soul, I use the term archaeology because I believe that in the current era, the hypermedia digital era that we're in, right. the conditions that keep this ineffable presence called are disappearing, uh, and the way in which I see this is that there is an increasing loss of imagination and loss of the capacity for direct experience. Yes. And in that loss comes a depersonalization of the individual where they actually start losing touch with the things that actually matter to them on the inside. Uh, mm -hmm. And then they, you know, it, it's very understandable and, and automatic where people then will assign status and emotional investment to external values, meaning yes. the values that society and, you know, the external world are um, telling us uh, this is what matters. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so part of the intention of the work is, is really kind of a spiritual intent of restoring the capacity for direct experience and stimulating imagination as part of that process. You speak about the separation between mind and mind and body and you mention William Reich's work could you talk to us about how you see that schism and perhaps how we can heal it well my own personal experiences in which is also where I start from yes um, I don't know the division there is no schism that I experienced in myself But it was not always that way, and I really had to work very hard towards that healing. And Wilhelm Reich uh, wrote extensively on what he called the emotional plague. And this is his way of describing uh, a certain kind of neurosis or neurotic behavior that develops as a corrosive effect on people's social lives by um, this uh, constant distancing between mind and body. This idea, for example, that the mind is superior to the body and the body is somehow inferior to the mind. Exactly. And so there sets up almost like a moral value evaluation uh, that 
really needs to be broken down uh, to begin the healing process of restoring to the mind a perception, a new perception of the body as teacher, the body as guru, as the body as, uh, yes. a, as a source of intelligence that is capable of guiding the mind towards wisdom. That's right, that's right. And, and this is a very difficult process because, you know, we live in an age of tremendous intellectual arrogance. And just to be able to um, surrender that arrogance is a huge act. It's a very big thing to be able to let go of that so that the intellect can actually build some receptivity and respect for the, um, the faint voice of the body and yes. the signals and the rhythms and the cycles uh, of the body that really are cycles and rhythms that connect us to all living forms. Mm -hmm. on the planet. Mm -hmm. How can we, on a daily basis, recognize this arrogance and let go of it more and more so that we can hear maybe the planet, Gaia, our connection with animals? It's a really great question. One of my favorite ways of uh, detecting the arrogance is simply our capacity for being offended to the degree that uh, you know, we become annoyed with people or situations that aren't happening just the way we want it or mm -hmm. we find ourselves very easily offended. These, I think, are really telltale signs of this intellectual arrogance that I'm talking about, that, um, that you know, we, we forget how utterly insignificant and meaningless our lives actually are simultaneously with how meaningful and significant they are. And, and I think that's really, in a sense, the... Uh, the philosophical muscle we have to develop um, is one of being able to hold those contraries of, you know, we are equally insignificant and equally significant. And if we lose track of one or the other, we're prone to what, you know, the psychologists are going to be calling positive or negative ego inflation. Yes, yes. And so, you know, the, the people that go around, you know, with an overemphasis on how significant or important they are, then they are the ones suffering from the positive ego inflation, and those are the big ego, big heads. Mm -hmm. And then those, the, then, the, then there are the people, the other extreme, who suffer from extremely so low self-worth, and they're constantly harping on how insignificant they are and have no effect on the world or anything like that. And then they would be suffering from, you know, what would be called uh, negative ego inflation. But either one is ego inflation. Either one is delusion. I had, while you were talking about that, I had this image of my body floating on the sea or on the ocean and uh, to find uh, a right ego space is sort of like uh, letting the body float on the ocean. Well, that's a beautiful image. I mean, we all are our own little ships on the great sea of life, so to speak. And, and you know, as we're navigating our ships on that, vast ocean we have to be attentive to you know the larger currents and the wind changes and the weather shifts and everything we have to be attentive and and to do that you have to be receptive to forces larger you know than your little ship or your ship will capsize <laughs> and you will drown yeah yeah exactly so do you feel that when you uh, when you do these para theatrical labs you uh you get together with people floating on the ocean. <laughs> well, there are certainly moments of um, uh, rapture and ecstasy and this kind of free-floating experience. Uh, there are a whole spectrum of the human response that is explored 
mm-hmm. you know, the spectrum between heaven and hell and everything in between. Right. You know, the condition of rapture and bliss, as, as significant as that is for the healing process, there's also life after bliss and uh, reasons for doing this work beyond uh, one's own personal um, ecstasy. Yes, yes. Well, um, after ecstasy, the laundry or something like that. Yeah, what's interesting is in Timothy Leary's 8th Circuit Brain Model is a great way to reference this process because in his definition of uh, the 5th Circuit is really relating to those experiences of somatic rapture and, and bliss of being high in that uh, physical way that we're just describing. And in the sixth circuit, is it really is a shift from physical pleasure to brain pleasure. Yes. And so we go into the sixth circuit, and then you, you, you really start entering into the that strata of existence of the self-aware central nervous system and the self-aware brain and uh, the whole notion of the possibility of a being of light, of the experience of yourself as as luminosity and your experience of yourself as a central nervous system interacting with other central nervous systems. And it, it brings uh, the consciousness to an entirely different perspective because it's no longer we're identifying with the physical body, but going into a more uh, identification to a more refined um, biology, which is the central nervous system. And it even goes further, of course, to the seventh circuit. Yes. We're talking about the genetic uh, matrix of the DNA and, and the center of the molecule. And then it goes further into the eighth circuit where we dive right down into the central nucleus of the atom and um, into that kind of non-local strata of, um, gosh, the, the, the weirdest experiences that we can <laughs> fathom as human beings Yes. outside of the physical body. Yes, yes. Floating out there in the dream time. Absolutely. I feel uh, Alex Gray has uh, expressed these images in his paintings. Very much so. Now, have you experienced the seventh and eighth circuit? I have on several occasions. Um, when I was very young, around the age of 23, I had probably my, it was my first, but I think probably my very only uh, genuine out of body experience. Oh. And uh, an experience that uh, significantly changed the way I saw myself and, you know, the ideas of who I actually am, the out-of-body experience forced onto my conscious ego that I could never again completely identify with my physical body. But that was over. That era was over. Uh-huh. And since then, I've been really, um, in a lot of ways, you know, living in a society of people who are more identified with their physical bodies or their minds or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really struggling to find my way of how to um, communicate and how to reach out to people who don't have my experience and try to share with them what it is that I do and what it is that I see more specifically. And this is how I've been able to do this through um, uh, my filmmaking processes. I've been making yes. length art films for about 15 years now, and, and pretty much each one explores a different level of this process of me coming to terms with my out-of-body experience mm-hmm. and how that comes to interact with uh, a lot of different other areas of my life that are all embodied in the body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to ask you. Um, you speak about uh, no schism between the mind and body and the exquisite 
growing connection of the mind with the body. And then you speak about out-of-body experience. Can you bring these two semantics together for me? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. I think that's why I make films, because I, I really cannot find the words. Uh, I think language is, um, yes, I is this context uh, exhibits some severe shortcomings in really um, uh, conveying and communicating and coming to some kind of coherent you know, uh, expression of what this means yes. and what it is and so forth. So I find in the making of films, which is a um, kind of a multi-textural process, you know, there's sound, there's music, yeah. there's visuals, there's visual effects, there's the actors, there's words. And so all these different levels help me um, better approach express. a more honest uh, expression of the things that I know and feel and see, but uh, find that words alone fail to express. Absolutely. So, Antero, a little housekeeping question. How can we see your films? How can we have access to your films? My films are actually now all on DVD, and people can um, uh, purchase them now uh, at my website at www.verticalpool.com. Some of them are going to be also available uh, fairly soon at um, the Original Falcon Press, uh, OriginalFalcon.com. They're going to be distributing a few of them. And um, if you're on the West Coast, I oftentimes um, have public screenings. Uh, The next public screening will be in San Francisco, October 17th at uh, ATA. And that information will be posted on my website for people living in the San Francisco area. October 17th, I'll be screening yes. my newest film called The Invisible Forest, Yes, uh, which is perhaps my most um, uh, hallucinogenic and visually rich film to date. Now, this film is inspired in, uh, in part by the life of Antonin Artaud. Yes, and uh, specifically some of his um, ideas. In part, his life more indirectly, but directly I've I've, take, I've been inspired by um, his uh, somewhat radical ideas of reinventing theater uh-huh. the last 35 years since I was a teenager. And I haven't really in all this time, because I've, I've written and produced so a dozen or so plays, and I've made you know about a dozen movies now. And I, and I haven't until now, until The Invisible Forest, figured out a way to actually bring some of these ideas and the visions they represent into some kind of palpable form and medium of expression. Uh, his ideas are so outrageous and sometimes so abstract and out there that they provide a great point of departure and inspiration, but almost impossible to, you know, bring into manifestation. Yes, yes. This prompts me to uh, want to ask you a question. What about madness? Do you think it, madness exists? And... Um, I'm a bit uh, I'm a bit sorry to use a label but we have to communicate so it's just an impulse that I wanted to ask you that question. Well, it, I think it's a great question. I myself I consider myself um clinically sane. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, I work hard at that and I'm clinically sane in part because I um I enjoy um the adventures of pursuing states of consciousness and you know journeys into the internal landscape of the unconscious mm-hmm. which is fraught with peril and danger and so forth but i feel that i have worked hard enough to define and 
take these temporary um, journeys into what other people might call madness, but what I call, you know, in a sense, uh, the expansion of, of mental territory. But it's not uh, for me to stay there. You mm-hmm. know, this is part of building the anchor of, you know, life in the here and now, I'm in touch with my feelings and the values that make my life worth living and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not, you know, th- there are certain types of madness where you don't return to the here and now. Mm-hmm. Yes. You go, you take a one-way ticket, and you yeah. don't come back. And that's not the kind of journey that I'm personally interested in. Um, I'm always on a two-way uh, trip. I like that. Yes, it it reminds me of the uh, East Coast, Maine, Vermont expression, where they say, I came by it honestly. That's that's what I feel about my own sanity. I came by it honestly. Yeah, well, that's exactly <laughs> right. I mean, you really have to live honestly to live outside the lawns, in, in a way. Yeah, exactly. Be an honest outlaw. <laughs> no other kind. No other kind. <laughs> okay, well, I'd love to hear about your relationship with your partner, your wife, Sylvie, because I'm fascinated by... Um, Loving creative relationships. Well, Sylvie and I have been in creative collaboration for almost 20 years, although we didn't hook up as uh, lovers uh, until 13 years ago. Wow. So we've been at it for a while, and we're, we couldn't be more different as personalities. And so the, the primary um, work we had to endure uh, to be able to endure ourselves and each other was, you know, mm-hmm. to, you know, basically grow up to... Um, enough so we can not only learn to permit our differences but learn to cultivate a genuine excitement for our differences yeah because we are so very different and in the beginning stages it was very difficult because we were so different each each one of us were trying to convert the other to be more like each other and mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't go anywhere might go somewhere if we were more like each other but i think part of the beauty here is really one of how much um of an interplay of contraries we have become and so, in a sense, there's a kind of a living paradox, you know, if you just look at it in a very literal, linear way, the two of us should not be together. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> okay. Um, but if you, if you look at it with a little bit of imagination and intuition, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. And Sylvie's talent is primarily rooted in her um, deep musical sense uh-huh. uh, as a composer, multi-instrumentalist, and a singer. And she also does some acting in some of my films, too. Uh, so she's stretching her talent in that way. She provides a good, you know, 50 to 100% of the musical soundtrack to my movies. Yes. So it, my movies really would not be what they are without her music. They really are a, a marriage of our talents uh, through that. And I think part of how we've been able to survive and thrive as a couple who are so different from each other is that our our love is not just for each other. That's right. Our love is for this third point of creation that we serve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, um, I think, uh, plays a pretty big role in, in uh, fueling the momentum of our longevity. I see, I see. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that with us. But it hasn't been easy. I... I completely understand. (laughs) Antero Timothy says about you that you're a special brand of human, a frontier scout for the species. 
And so I want to ask you, what attracted you to Timothy Leary's work and uh, what inspired you to use these, um, this map of the human brain? Well, I first uh, discovered the Eighth Circuit Brain Model in Robert Anton Wilson's book, The Cosmic Trigger. Yes. And there was a chapter in there that really was focusing on it. And when I came upon it, it was just unlike anything I'd really seen or read about, but at the same time quite familiar. And it was really quite compelling. I needed to know more about that. So I went right away and, and got Timothy's book, um, uh, Exopsychology. Mm-hmm. And then later um, on, um, read um, Bob Wilson's book, uh, Prometheus Rising. And I was just uh, really... Um, uh, moved and taken and touched uh, by what both of these men had done. And yet there felt like there was something missing around the application of the Eight Circuit Brain Model. And I learned from Bob Wilson that uh, in Tim's Harvard days, you know, one of his nicknames was Theory Leary. And so it makes total <laughs> sense that he comes up with this brilliant theory and presents it on a very highly theoretical basis. And it makes total sense that Robert Anton Wilson takes that theory and finds all of these, a spectrum, really a spectrum of sociological, political, economic, and scientific scientific proofs mm-hmm. for that theory. Mm-hmm. And yet there was still something missing. And I decided that what was missing was how the Eighth Circuit Brain Model might actually be applied on a daily basis for an individual who was actually interested in increasing increasing their intelligence, but they needed some kind of, not just map, but a series of meditations, exercises, tasks, things to participate in, uh-huh. where they can register immediate results, and then through those results, begin to see the development of their work. And that's what inspired me to go ahead and write my book, Angel Tech, right. which is pretty much an action-packed book filled with those kinds of applications so people can find out for themselves, you know, the results of Tim's theories uh, through their own nervous systems, through their own bodies. This book is still in print by Falcon Press. Well, it it is. uh, Falcon Press has been um, splintered up and broken up because of the recent death of their president, uh, uh, Christopher S. Hyatt. And so... Angel Tech is between printings. Uh, the okay. next printing will actually be coming out on what's called the original Falcon Press. This is a new press. Actually, it's run by Nicholas Tharcher, who was Dr. Hyatt's business partner for 25 years in the original, you know, the other Falcon. Uh-huh. And so he's starting his new press now called the original Falcon. And the next edition of Angel Tech, which includes a new introduction by myself, will be coming out uh, in September. Okay. In just a couple months. Okay. So you develop the concepts of Timothy's and Robert Anton Wilson. You continue the development of these concepts. Well, um, not so much developing the concepts. I thought the concepts were already pretty fully developed um, okay. by the time it got to Bob Wilson. What I was developing more was the application the of application. the concepts yeah. and the um, manifestation of the concepts into actions. Okay. So read Angel Tech. Yeah, Angel Tech. Angel Tech is is not about angels. Angel Angel Tech is like a code word for the right and left brain, right right and left side of the brain. Mm -hmm. Angel, the right, tech, the left. I see, I see. Angel Tech, right, left side of the brain. 
Antiro, I'd love to go into your um, your meeting and work with Gubu Ted Thomas and the dreaming rituals. If you would introduce us to this and uh, and take us into that particular oh, well, uh, door. That's, that's a, I'll, I'll see if I can break that down into a very short version of the story. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, when I was living in Boulder, Colorado, I was um, uh, working for a newspaper there doing interviews with people. And I was called upon to interview um, an uh, Aborigine elder who was mm-hmm. in town for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, his name was Gabu Ted Thomas. And so I went to interview him, and I had never met an Aborigine elder, and I, I, I didn't really know what to ask him except that I had some personal interest in um, the Aboriginal spirituality of the dream time. Mm-hmm. And so I was asking him, for example, how is it that you teach the techniques of the dream time to your people? Mm-hmm. And he, he just started laughing, and he says, we don't teach the techniques of the dream time to the people. The mountain teaches the dreaming. Uh-huh. And I says, what mountain? And, and then he mentions a word, I, I forget it was, it was the aboriginal word for the um, Ayers Rock, which is the English word. Yes. Huge, huge rock mountain in the center of Australia. And uh, he basically says is that there's a ritual preparation that is, he goes out in what he calls dreaming camps, a ritual preparation involving fasting and different types of um, drumming and different types of working the body so the body becomes uh, more supple and, you know, you sweat and you really work the body. And then you go into, you know, into processes of prayer, mm-hmm. ritual prayer to the mountain, and the mountain feeds you the energy of the dreaming. The mm-hmm. mountain informs us. So the mountain teaches the dreaming. Mm-hmm. But he introduced a very profound idea there for me um, that uh, uh, the mountain, which in a feng shui context is represents a deep yin energy. Mm-hmm. And this is because of the stillness. Uh, the mountain carries a very profound stillness within it. And yeah. so this is why it's the profound depth of yin. Uh-huh. And it's that that deep yin that uh, I think is a real connecting point uh, for the aboriginal spirituality that sees the earth itself as synonymous with the dreaming, uh-huh. that the earth and the dreaming are one and the same, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. the surrender to the earth is uh, a way into the dream time portal. Very important. The connection with the earth is then starting to be a connection with the dreaming. So that piece there inspired me in my own work in the paratheater work that I've been developing since 1977 Right. to begin applying that idea to some of my previously existing ideas and the result was what I call the dreaming ritual which is the process of cultivating a, a special type of dream recall uh, mm-hmm. not a dream recall for images or yes. what a dream means or not a dream recall for colors or people but a dream recall to recollect specific movements, kinetic properties uh-huh. in a dream. And this could be movements that you personally do in a dream as the dream body, or it could be movements that you see someone else do. It could be a movement of a tree branch moving this way and that. As long as you can replicate that movement mm-hmm. physically yourself when you wake. Mm-hmm. So uh, the dreaming ritual involves this process of stalking movements. Oh, yes. But when you wake up in the morning,
right away and you, you find three movements at least. You start with three movements and it can be from the same dream or different dreams as long as it's from the dream. Mm -hmm. And you find these three movements and you practice the three movements separately. And then when you have a good physical memory for all three dream movements, so mm -hmm. you can do them just like second nature, then you stitch them together in a movement cycle. So the end of one movement, you find a transition and blend it into the, the beginning of the second movement. In the end of the second movement, you kind of blend it and find a transition into the beginning of the third movement. Mm -hmm. And then you bring it on around to the, the beginning of the first movement. It creates a circle, like a cycle. And you find a way to participate physically in this choreography. This is now a kind of dreaming movement cycle, yes. a choreography that you participate in, that you engage in an act. Mm. And doing that, you release uh, uh, several things come into play. The first is that it will have its own rhythm. It will have its own unique beat and rhythm. Mm -hmm. And then you participate in that rhythm. You give yourself over to that rhythm. And then then what also happens, this is in some ways to the degree that you can remember the movements very exactly to the way they occurred in your dream, mm -hmm. so you don't embellish them or make them fancy. You just keep them exactly as you remember them. And this is will, will, will tend to keep the dream power, the power of the dreaming in the movement, so that when you enact the movement consciously in the daytime, what happens is the, the release of dream memory into your daytime consciousness while you're performing the dreaming movement. Mm -hmm. So then this starts to open up the interface between the daytime and the dream time mm -hmm. consciously. So we're doing it on purpose. This is what makes it a ritual. You're doing it on purpose. And this forms the basis of the dreaming ritual. There's more, um, more pieces, more elements that substantiated and help bring more precision and so forth that is imp almost impossible to talk about without demonstrating in person what this, you know, appears like. But that's, yes, yes. that's the basis of it. And the aim of it is primarily to open up awareness and uh, receptivity to the uh, interface between dream time and daytime, so there's no more division anymore, so that they, they are coming together, so the, the dream memory and the dream emotion, the dream imagery, all comes into conscious mind while you're performing the dreaming ritual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it leads to a, a, an unusual sense of um, unity and a certain glimpse into that seventh circuit consciousness yes. of all-encompassing unity between daytime and dream time so there's you know it, it moves beyond the dualistic uh, uh, way of seeing and thinking thank you so much Antero Ali for offering this link this transition link to us who are listening to you today thank you very much for asking now tell me if there's anything in particular that you'd like to talk to us about, we have a little bit of time left and I, I would love to open it up for you to speak about what you want to talk about. Well, I'll be turning 56 in a few months. And mm -hmm. what I've been um, recollecting on is the course my life has taken over the years and then helps me understand the course of the lives other people have taken over the years. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've discovered that early on uh, became very important to me, and I feel very fortunate that it did, was that the significance of um, finding um, outlets of expression 
and ways of participating at the level of what I will call the gut, the heart, and the head, these mm -hmm. three centers. Mm -hmm. And I have found over the last 30 or more years, each of those three centers have been given enough attention, like my filmmaking is all from my heart for the most part, you know, that's it's my love. Yes. What I do um, and the aesthetics and the beauty of that. And my work with astrology and the extractive brain is very much of the mind, you see. And then mm -hmm. my paratheater work is very much of the body. And, and of course, these three levels interact. They're talking with each other. They want to know each other. Mm -hmm. But what I've discovered in giving, of, of feeding these three centers, of not leaving any one of them out, mm -hmm. really finding a way to nurture and feed all three centers, Mm -hmm. and the heart, the gut, that there can be over time a, a kind of a birthing of a fourth center. Uh-huh. And a fourth center that um, is really um, a kind of an enveloping sphere or egg that is acts as its own kind of protection and maintenance of containing of the other three. So I can allow myself, I can continue to to live an honest life and to live according to my God, my heart, my mind. Mm -hmm. Amidst a society that for all extensive purposes has gone mad. Yes. And or has continued to perpetuate um, a culture of fear and depersonalization. Uh, not to mention, you know, the diseases of com over commercialization and so forth. Right. So I have no criticisms of society beyond the fact that we live in a dangerous world. And I want to know what the dangers are. Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to continue moving in a way that's honest and true to myself amidst the danger that I perceive around me without being destroyed by that danger. Right. And so hopefully these words and the resonances in my voice may touch somebody who's listening and encourage them to also feed these three centers, the head, the heart, and the gut. And if you are, I think if you're feeding these three centers uh, consistently, um, you're going to be um, less likely to have these three centers force-fed by the culture at large, which is primarily toxic. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Antero, do you feel that we can make a, a course correction as uh, the human species? You mean before becoming extinct? Yes, exactly. Very hard to say. See, I'm I'm of the philosophy that the earth is calling the shots. Exactly. And what I mean by that is that regardless of the appearance of human tragedy or human error or human lack of judgment or what have you, I see everybody really uh, through the genetic matrix that we're all part of as expressions of the earth's own intelligence. Uh-huh. And that the earth is really navigating its course. Uh, us humans, you know, we're... A pretty conceited bunch. We're pretty self-centered and uh, self-absorbed, and for the most part, you know, go so far as to blame ourselves entirely for a global warming, for example. <laughs> and you know, where the Earth has gone through cycles of global morning warming before humans even existed. You know, it's gone through its own ice ages, its own you know ways of disrupting patterns and creating chaos and change and destruction in order for it to continue molting and outgrowing its previous versions of itself. So, you know, we're in this highly transformative, uh, very complex, but also very intelligent ecosystem called planet Earth, mm -hmm. 
which I think is, again, calling the shots. So to me, I think that the earth will do us in before the humans do us in. You know, in in the most harsh way, and I don't necessarily, you know, ascribe to this view, but you can see it in the most harsh way. You know, civilization can be seen as almost like a cancer on the earth's skin. Right. Uh, I'm not saying I live with that, or I'm not that, you know, pessimistic or cynical or whatever. But to me, the earth has so much power and strength that, um, you know, if it wants to shake off this or that, um, you know, piece of that surface crust or whatever, it will manifest a volcano or an earthquake or a storm. It will draw asteroids to itself. It, it's in complete communication interaction with interstellar entities of other star systems. And you know, there's so much more than meets the eye, um, I think, when it comes to, okay, what course are we on? You know, whose course? Right. Uh, <laughs> so, so I, you know, to me, the jury's not in yet. And, and what I, you know, what I watch, I watch the changes of the earth uh, first. I watch the earth changes first. And then I watch the changes of culture second. Um, and then I, I take a look at where the money is going, you know, where technology and money is moving. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's all these different components to figure out. Certainly there are pockets of enlightened individuals, meaning people basically who um, are receptive to the earth as an intelligent entity that has incarnated as this planet. Mm-hmm. There are individuals that recognize that and, and honor that as the way they live and walk the earth and so forth. And that's a great thing to be able to um, meet amongst us and have rituals and participate in gatherings and events and celebrations. And I can only hope that... Um, you know, those people find each find more of each other and uh, continue watching the movements of the earth. As Timothy used to say, find the others. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and here we are. We have found, Beautiful. found each other. Found each other, yes. Antero Ali, thank you so much for your generosity of voice and mind and heart. And just want to ask you if there is anything you'd like to add to this Excellent conversation. Oh, gosh. You've had such great questions. Um, I really appreciate what you're doing there with, you know, modern primitives. Is it future primitives? Future primitives, yes. Future (laughs) primitives. And just a great service, you know, to be continually checking in with the individuals out there that are, you know, very sincere and participating in my level of commitment to, you know, the work that is meaningful uh, to them and other people. So I, I'm, the only thing I would express is just my gratitude for, you know, what you're doing there. Thank you. Well, much, much, much warmth to you. And till next time.